Last night, we presented the uh, historical case for Jesus Christ. We were using almost entirely historical and artistic reasoning to show you uh, that the documents of the New Testament are solid and can be relied upon. And at the very end, we went on to talk about the picture of Jesus in these documents. Uh, There, Jesus presents himself as no less than God Almighty. So, what do we have at this point? We have solid documents that tell us that there was this person uh, 2,000 years ago who claimed to be God come to earth uh, to uh, die for the sins of the world. What we're going to do tonight is to move on to the two other considerations that are vital to establish this argument. Uh, First of all, we're going to deal with the witnesses, the testimony uh, that provides the information we've just mentioned. Uh, How do we we evaluate the fact that we get this information from uh, principally four documents, the four Gospels? Uh, Are the witnesses that these documents represent reliable? And that is why we're talking tonight uh, as to a lawyer's defense of Christianity, because lawyers are specialists in testimony. And then we go on to the capstone issue, uh, namely the evidence that Jesus was exactly the person he claimed to be, and that these eyewitnesses tell us uh, he claimed to be. And that focuses on his resurrection from the dead. So tonight, uh, it's more of a legal operation than a historical uh, operation, but you will discover that the method of uh, demonstration is really the same, uh, both in history and in law. What we are concerned about is facts. We want to investigate facts to see if the facts weigh in favor of position A or position B. This is how the courts operate. Uh, This is why you have uh, attorneys on both sides. Uh, You have the case presented and an attempt to refute that case, and then you have a jury or a finder finder of fact, uh, a judge in, in many instances, who evaluates this evidence and comes to a conclusion. Uh, In in history, the historian looks at events, attempts to interpret these in the best way possible, and then uh, writes history according to the way the facts point. The key to this is facts. Or to quote Sherlock Holmes, facts, 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 Watson. Uh, Holmes was constantly trying to get uh, Holmes of uh, trying to get Watson to pay attention uh, to the facts and not to opinion uh, or to speculation. Uh, some years ago, at the Sherlock Holmes Society uh, in London, um, we had as a guest at the annual banquet uh, David Jenkins, uh, who, who was an uh, Anglican bishop. And this uh, fellow uh, had made statements that were so bizarre about Jesus that Muslim students on the campus where I had my professorship would quote him uh, against the Trinitarian picture of Jesus maintained by the church through the centuries. And uh, the only reason he was invited was that he was on a a British uh, television program called Desert Island Discs, and he had said if he were on a desert island, he would want to read the Sherlock Holmes stories. 
What he didn't realize was that another member of the society always had a right of reply. And uh, it so happened that the society thought I was the ideal person to speak after the bishop spoke. And all I said was this, it is really unfortunate today that theologians pay no attention to the advice that Holmes gave to Watson. Facts, facts, facts. If you deviate from the biblical facts, you're never going to understand Christianity because you're never going to understand Jesus Christ. Christianity is Jesus Christ, and the only vehicle for getting to the nature of Christianity is by way of those biblical facts which are reliable. And uh, the bishop was squirming through, through this, of course, uh, and uh, <clears throat> he was sitting next to my wife, and when I finished talking, he said, well, if I'd wanted to, I could have talked about Sherlock Holmes also. <laughs> yes. By the way, you all know the, dif- the, di- uh, the distinction between a bishop and an archbishop? You know that? It's the arch. It's the arch. Yeah. All right. Uh, our focus is on a legal approach tonight. And that gives me the opportunity to tell my, my one other uh, lawyer's story. Right? I told one last night. Uh, This is the story of the boundary dispute between heaven and hell. Uh, It seems that there is a uh, a offense uh, and uh, a covenant to repair between heaven and hell, and a certain section of the fence is uh, the devil's responsibility, and a certain section of the fence is the Lord's responsibility. And the Lord is out walking, and he discovers that the fence is down in the devil's territory. So he goes back to his office, he phones, Uh, And uh, he says, uh, you know the covenant to repair. Uh, You need to get out there and get that fence back up. The devil, the Lord says, now, you can't talk to me that way. You talk to me that way and I'm going to sue. The Lord says, a lawsuit is never a laughing matter. Says the devil, it is when all the lawyers are over here. Well, actually, they aren't all over there. (laughs) And we're going to see that good, solid legal evidence is a great asset in evaluating the case for Jesus Christ. You remember last night I said that you needed to stick into your noggin so it would stay there forever. The four points that make up our argument of these two evenings. First, The documents of the New Testament are solid. Second, Jesus presents himself in these documents as no less than God Almighty. Thirdly, thirdly, (laughs) the eyewitness testimony that gives us these data are solid. You can rely on those eyewitnesses. And fourthly, the resurrection... uh, constitutes the final proof of uh, the validity of Jesus' claims. So, tonight, we are dealing with items three and four. Three and four. How do we determine the value of eyewitness testimony? The first principle is very simple. Witnesses, just like 
the accused are innocent until proven guilty. You assume that a witness is telling the truth unless you have reason to think otherwise. So, witnesses are put on the stand, either in a common law court as in America and and England or a civil law court in France or Germany. Uh, They are put on the stand and the assumption is that they are telling the truth. The burden of proof will rest on the other side to show that they are lying like a rug. Now, uh, this means that the person who doesn't think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling the truth, that they are not reliable eyewitnesses, have, the person who thinks this, has the responsibility to demonstrate it. Uh, you, You don't have to show that they are good witnesses. This is assumed. What you have to show is they are not good witnesses if you want to be able to impugn or discount their testimony. Fair enough? And this is only fair, after all. Uh, It's the same principle that the accused is innocent until proven guilty. You don't want to start out with the assumption that people are liars. Uh, You want to assume that they are not, but then see if there's any good reason to think otherwise. All right. There are uh, two approaches uh, taught to fledgling uh, uh, lawyers uh, to help them to see whether a witness is in fact lying. Okay? Uh, the, the young law student is frightened witless of cross-examination because he says to himself, or she says to herself, I'll never be able to catch a person lying. The fact of the matter is that it isn't that difficult. And these techniques that I'm going to uh, talk about with you tonight uh, will, will show you this. And so... What we want to do is to begin with a construct, that is, a, uh, an approach, to uh, attacking perjury. And here it is. Yes. What we do is to look at the witness, himself or herself, from inside and from outside, and then we look at what the witness has said the testimony from inside and outside. So there are four uh, criteria that we would apply in looking at the gospel materials to see whether this stuff should be accepted as solid testimony or not. Let's begin with the witnesses themselves. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and other people who wrote in the New Testament, and other people who gave information to those uh, writers. Uh, Are those people in themselves uh, to be considered truthful? Or even better, is there any reason to consider that they are not truthful? Well, did they have criminal records? No. Uh, Did they have a screw loose somewhere? Were they they in trouble psychiatrically? No evidence of that. There, There doesn't seem to be anything about the personalities of the apostles, the apostolic community, uh, that would suggest that they're the kind of people that you would expect to lie. But you can, of course, also look at a witness uh, from outside. That is to say, there are people who under normal conditions do not lie, but as a result of uh, sufficient social pressure end up doing so. Could we say that the people who present uh, the picture of Jesus that we get in the New Testament 
were so pressured by their society that they gave a picture that wasn't accurate. Well, if there had been such pressure, it would have gone in exactly the opposite direction. The religious leaders uh, couldn't stand what Jesus was saying about himself and certainly did not support the notion presented in the New Testament that he was the Messiah. So uh, if social pressure is the issue, uh, the uh, New Testament uh, writers would have conformed the picture of Jesus to fit the societal expectations of the time. But could Jesus himself have influenced the disciples to write down material that wasn't really accurate? Problem there is that Jesus was dead against lying. Uh, he says at one point, speaking of religious leaders of his time, uh, they, they are of their father the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, and so are they. Uh, Jesus then was against prevarication and so would hardly have been a source of pushing these writers in that direction. All right, let's now look at what they wrote, the actual texts that we have in the New Testament. Let's look at the text from inside. That means asking whether they contain errors, contradictions, uh, material that would suggest that the stuff is not accurate. Well, there's no doubt about the fact that the four Gospels are not uh, presenting the identical picture of Jesus uh, at all. But as any lawyer, any trial lawyer will tell you, <laughs> the minute that you find that all your witnesses are saying exactly the same thing, you know that there has been collusion. Uh, I've had cases where, <laughs> for example, uh, two <clears throat> police... Um, will be witnesses in a particular case and uh, they, they get on the stand and they say exactly the same thing. What, what's, what's happened is that one of them has taken notes and then they've gotten together and they've made sure that they say exactly uh, the same thing uh, that the other person says. Uh, and that, of course, is just the opposite of a reliable witness. The four Gospels uh, are the presentation of the ministry of Jesus by four different writers. And these writers look at that ministry from four different angles. Uh, it's like uh, shining uh, four searchlights on a single object. The point being that what they say is not identical to what the other person says, but it is compatible with what the other person says. That is, the stuff can be uh, seen as uh, uh, connecting uh, in such a way that there is no contradiction involved. Uh, the people who talk about contradictions in the Gospels uh, generally have never had even a course in basic logic. They don't know what a contradiction is. Uh, what is a contradiction? It, it's two uh, considerations that cannot both be true at the same time under the same circumstances. Okay? Uh, here are some of the so-called contradictions that are presented uh, against the Gospels uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it is said, it is pointed out, that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have uh, Jesus cleaning out the temple at one end of his ministry, and in the Gospel of John, you have Jesus cleaning out the temple at the other end of his ministry. Now, is this a contradiction? Of course not. It would only be a contradiction if either of the two sources said he did it once and only once. 
There's no reason in the world why he couldn't have cleaned out the temple twice. Considering the condition of the temple, I'm surprised he didn't do it every Saturday night. And uh, it is pointed out, for example, that the the text says that Jesus entered uh, Jerusalem on an ass and the colt the foal of an ass. Uh, And it is said, how could he possibly have have ridden two beasts at the same time? Oh, for goodness sake. Uh, I got to Albuquerque by a series of airplanes. Uh, the airline companies will will not be mentioned because I don't want a defamation suit uh, based based upon the delays and other nonsense uh, that was involved in in actually getting here. Uh, but I came by by plane, and then from the airport I came here by car. Uh, the, when the text talks about this in in Jesus' case, it's not suggesting that he was on two animals simultaneously. It simply means that he used two animals in the course of of his uh, uh, movement from uh, one place to to the other. And so on and so on. Uh, These gospel records are not in contradiction. They complement each other uh, and uh, they have what uh, Phillips, the translator, called the ring of truth. Uh, said Phillips, when I was translating this material, it was like uh, being in a in a house um, and, uh, and 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 having contact uh, with the electrical system when uh, they with, with an electrical cord when they hadn't turned the mains off. In other words, there was such dynamism in this stuff uh, that it couldn't possibly be regarded uh, as uh, some kind of prevarication. What about looking at these documents from outside? What does that mean? Well, it would mean comparing them with any other documents referring to the same material. And here, we don't have any other material. The only material we have concerning the life of Christ uh, is the material that has been collected in the New Testament. But what we do have is a great deal of archaeological material, and the archaeological material invariably supports the material that you have in the Gospels themselves. Thus, a hundred years ago, there were uh, religious liberals and skeptics who said, oh, the Gospel writers even invented Roman personnel to make this stuff look like it was historical. Uh, People like Pontius Pilate, because there hadn't been any mention of Pontius Pilate in records that we had at that point. Well, in the 1960s, a pilot inscription was found near uh, Tiberias uh, in Palestine, uh, and that mentions his name and his uh, procreatorship. So uh, this is simply one illustration of many of the fact that the materials outside of the New Testament support it and do not detract from it. So if one uses this analysis of the gospel writers and the gospel materials, one is not left with any basis for considering that they would have falsified the material that they present about Jesus. That was simple, wasn't it? Now for something a little bit more complex. (laughs) How do you determine whether uh, an eyewitness is lying? Well, first you need to understand what normal, truthful communication consists of. And that's what we have in this chart. All right. 
there are five elements here. First, an event occurs. Secondly, somebody who, who has seen the event remembers it. There is recollection. Thirdly, uh, the person who remembers it selects a certain portion of what he remembers or she remembers uh, in order to uh, present it. There is always selection. Uh, we, we never uh, attempt to present everything that we can possibly remember about anybody or any event. Uh, thus, for example, and you can check this out, no biography of Abraham Lincoln tells you how many times he went to the bathroom. <laughs> All right? Uh, and uh, after making a selection, one chooses symbols to present it. Now, symbols are normally words, but not necessarily. If you were driving too fast on the Italian autostrada uh, and you cut an Italiano off and you then looked in your rearview mirror, you might see this. That is a symbol. That is a symbol. I am not going to give you a full translation or even a partial translation of it. And then finally, finally, uh, there is the uh, interpretation by the listeners of what is presented. That's normal, truthful communication. Now, what happens when prevarication enters in? The first thing to note about this is the complexity of it. The complexity of it. Being truthful is much more straightforward than lying. At the top of this chart are the first two blocks of the other chart, the truthful chart. And at the bottom, the bottom three blocks are also the same as on that truthful chart. At the very top, you have the event. You have an original remembering of it. And down at the bottom, you have finally a selection of what's to be presented, the symbols, and the interpretation. But everything in between the top two blocks and the bottom three blocks enter into the picture the minute that lying occurs. The uh, liar, after he remembers what actually happened, then decides on a distortion to serve his own purposes. He decides to modify the truth. Okay, The minute he does this, he becomes a juggler and he has to keep at least three balls in the air simultaneously. And what are these? He has to compare what he is now saying to what the uh, person he's talking to might already know, okay? And that could contradict what he's saying. Secondly, he has to compare what he is now saying with any other stories he has set forth previously. Liars must have good memories, yes. And thirdly, he has to compare what he's saying with what could be discovered with a certain uh, amount of, uh, of work. And having gotten these three balls into the air, he then has to estimate his chances of being found out, his chances of discovery. And at that point... He has another choice to make. Does he continue with this version of his story or does he modify it? 
If he modifies it further, the number of balls in the air multiplies, not arithmetically, <laughs> but <laughs> by multiple uh, order. And the result of this is that there are all these balls in the air, and it's going to be very easy to catch one of them uh, in order to uh, show that the person is lying. Uh, this uh, approach uh, is presented uh, to fledgling cross-examiners, fledgling trial attorneys, to show them that it's not really going to be that difficult to catch people who are not telling the truth, uh, witnesses that cannot be relied upon. Now, you might very well say that's all good and well, that's all good and well, uh, but uh, there were no cross-examiners dealing with the writers of the New Testament uh, in the first century, uh, and we can't put them on the witness stand today. So how does that really help us? Well, it helps us because, as F.F. Bruce, the great uh, New Testament scholar at University of Manchester, used to say, the presence of hostile witnesses, in the case of the New Testament, is the functional equivalent of cross-examination. What do we mean by this? What we mean is that if the New Testament writers, if those witnesses had modified the life of Christ, if they had put in miracles or fulfilled prophecy or events that never happened in the life of Christ at all, the Jewish religious leaders would surely have blown the whistle on them. They had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to do so. If they had gone to the extent, as they did, of crucifying our Lord, do you think that they would have allowed these materials to circulate, and they circulated first in the Jewish community, uh, without any criticism of them whatsoever? They were also specialists in the Old Testament, so that uh, these gospel records that contain so much uh, material on the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament in the life of our Lord, surely those Jewish religious leaders would have said, no, 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 he wasn't born, born in Bethlehem, he was born in Detroit, or something like that. Uh, they would not have allowed the New Testament writers to get away with perverting the picture of Christ. The presence of those hostile witnesses is equivalent to cross-examination as it would occur in a court of law. Now you'll be thrilled to know that one of my hats is that of an international certified fraud examiner. Yes, uh, and uh, the, the value of this is that, that I, can, uh, I have certain techniques uh, for detecting fraud in organizations, uh, business organizations, religious organizations, that sort of thing, right? Um, and, and a further advantage is that if I ever wanted to commit fraud myself, I could do this in a really sophisticated way. Uh, I have not chosen to do that, uh, but uh, it's a thought. I mean, every, everyone must, must have an, uh, an idea of a second career these days. Yes, yes. All right. Now, uh, the most authoritative uh, names in fraud analysis are those of a Donald Cressy, uh, and a Steve Albrecht. They are both Americans, and their work has uh, influenced uh, fraud uh, techniques worldwide. Donald Cressy uh, created what has been 
uh, come to be known as the fraud triangle. This is to give you three considerations in the form of a triangle that will help you predict when fraud is going to occur in an organization uh, or on any level. What are these three considerations? Well, there needs to be social pressure on the individual that will move him in that direction. There also needs to be a perceived opportunity. There needs to be uh, a situation which is flexible enough that the person can uh, create a fraudulent uh, result uh, and get away with it. And thirdly, there needs to be um, an ethical uh, lack in the person that will result in rationalization. That is to say, excusing himself for doing this. Okay? So, for example, a uh, standard example, uh, the, uh, the, the bank teller, the bank teller notices that uh, there is pretty sloppy accounting going on in the bank. The teller also cannot stand her boss. The boss is an obnoxious character who keeps pinching her. Uh, not in the presence of the bank customers, of course, uh, but uh, this is, she is sick and tired of this. Uh, and uh, so uh, there is pressure. In this case, it's literal because she's being pinched. Uh, and uh, there, is, there is opportunity because there isn't careful accounting going on at the bank. And so she says to herself, well, look at the low salary that I get in relation to the pincher. Uh, I, as the pinchee, should, should have a much higher salary than I do, and I don't. They don't appreciate me, see? And therefore, uh, they've got only themselves to blame. They haven't got a good accounting system, and so she starts uh, siphoning off uh, money. Okay? Now, uh, this has been made a little bit more sophisticated by Albrecht. This is the fraud scale, and really it isn't any different from the fraud triangle, but it's put out in, a, I think, a more effective uh, diagram. All right? Here you've got a scale, and what Albrecht says is this. Any time that the situational pressure is high and the uh, opportunities are great... Hmm, and the ethical level of the individual is low, when you have this combination of three factors, okay, high opportunity, high pressure, and low morals, you're going to have the great likelihood of fraud. All right. Suppose we apply this to the New Testament writers. Would that signify anything as to uh, their lack of truthfulness? Not hardly. As we've said, the situational pressures on the apostles were all in the opposite direction. The religious leaders uh, of the Jewish community desperately wanted them to say the exact opposite of what they said about Jesus. So the situational pressures would never have pushed them to make the claims about Christ that they did make. Uh, Their ethics can't be questioned. Uh, the only, uh, only one of the apostles uh, whose ethic is a little bit along the lines of modern fraud activity is that of Judas. Hmm? Uh, but, of course, he is hardly one of the writers of the New Testament, and we're hardly getting our information about Jesus from him. And 
What about opportunity? Well, we've already talked about that. There was no chance of their getting away with it, even if they did try to pervert the picture of Jesus, because the religious leadership of the time was right there and had every reason in the world to blow the whistle on any variation that they put into their records concerning the life of Christ. If the religious leaders could have uh, done anything uh, to take away from Jesus' credibility, they surely would have done this. And we do not have anything out of the first century that attempts to do this at all. The reason why we don't have it is that they couldn't provide it. I've already cited F.F. Bruce, but I could not resist giving you at least one Uh, French civil court citation because I knew that all of you very much wanted that. (laughs) In the Code Civil, in the French Civil Code, Article 1347, there is a principle which says this, that if a witness who surely should respond to a particular claim says nothing or refuses to say anything, the court can take this as the equivalent of an admission. The refusal to respond when rationally any sensible person would is enough to uh, discount the value of that person's position. Uh, And uh, in the civil code, there are various examples of this. For example, there was a a, a debtor Uh, who instructed his lawyer to send a letter uh, to the uh, the lender uh, in which um, he he said, I can't pay all of what is necessary at this time. I simply can't, but I can pay this certain sum. And then when the thing came came to trial, when the lender is suing the borrower for the whole business, uh, the lender refuses to say anything as to whether he ever received that letter, which was in effect an offer to provide something. And the court said, ha, uh, this, this, uh, this lender is, is not being truthful at all. Any reasonable person would of course acknowledge that. What's the importance of that? The Jewish religious community had the means, the motive, and the opportunities, as we've just said, to show that the gospel materials were not reliable that these witnesses were not the people who should be trusted. Uh, They had every chance to do this, and they did not do it at all. This is the refus de réponse. That's what it is. Uh, All this does is to show us that they were unable uh, to handle the situation and that these witnesses can be relied upon. All right. We're back in our argument from outline. We are now up to the final consideration in the argument. And it's important to recognize the importance of that point. It is the all-important consideration. Why? Because if we had only points one, two, and three, without point four, without the attestation, involved in the resurrection, fulfilled prophecy, and so forth, that would not demonstrate the truth of Christianity. There are other religions where the 
documents of the religion are good and where the leader of the religion claims to be the grand poobah uh, and uh, where uh, the people who say that he claimed to be the grand poobah are perfectly reliable. You must see logically that does not make him the grand poobah. Some years ago in New York, there was a gentleman who called himself Father Divine. Father Divine. And you would say to him, "Uh, good morning, and who are you? He would say, God, that's who. Uh, And uh, uh, his statements along that line were recorded. Uh, In fact, there was even an article on him in the New Yorker magazine, as I recall. And then a real tragedy occurred in New York. God died. Uh, We have good documentation that that fellow claimed to be God. And good testimony. But that doesn't mean he was. Uh, Another example of a more practical nature, the uh, Islamic faith, the Muslim religion, is founded on Muhammad's claim to be the unique prophet of God. There is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, Now, uh, you read the Quran, and the Quran makes claims like this, uh, and you talk with Muslims, and they say, ah, yes, uh, he is our prophet. But there isn't any evidence as to why anyone should, in fact, consider him the unique prophet of God. Uh, he, he performed no miracles. Uh, he, he, there, there's simply no way of demonstrating the truth of his claims. Uh, in other words, this falls into that category that I was mentioning uh, last night uh, of assertions that appear to be synthetic, meaningful assertions uh, that can be supported by testimony. But as you examine them more closely, they turn out to be meaningless because there isn't any evidence able to be marshaled in behalf of them. In the case of Christianity, uniquely, Christianity offers objective concrete historical evidence that Jesus was in fact the very person he claimed to be. So this fourth point is the attesting point. It's the verification point uh, that relates to the first three points. So what we're going to do for the rest of our time tonight is to deal with the issue of the resurrection. Uh, Tomorrow, uh, in our third session, when we talk about the full authority of the scriptures, we'll deal with fulfill prophecy. But here we're going to be dealing with the miracles issue. The classic argument against the miraculous was presented by a Scottish philosopher by the name of David Hume, H-U-M-E, 18th century. Uh, Hume was an important historian and uh, did some uh, valuable writing, uh, but his argument against the miraculous Uh, is still used in college textbooks of philosophy of religion uh, so that students will not think that you can uh, get to religious truth through miracle. The fact of the matter is that this argument uh, is, as a non-Christian philosopher has titled his book on it, Hume's Abject Failure. 
Hume's Abject Failure. Uh, this is a book uh, by the philosopher John Ehrman, uh, and uh, uh, in the book, uh, Ehrman says, sadly, Hume's argument is a circular argument. It doesn't prove anything. How does the argument go? It goes like this. says Hume, there is uniform experience against the miraculous. Therefore, uh, miracles don't occur. Now, uh, there's no doubt about the fact that if there were uniform experience against the miraculous, that is to say, if nobody had ever seen a miracle, then we couldn't very well assert that miracles were taking place. But this just begs the question, for goodness sake. Uh, In the New Testament, you've got all of these witnesses saying, he rose again from the dead. So there isn't uniform experience against the miraculous. It's true that most people die and stay dead. I, I'm perfectly willing to concede this. Okay? It, you could, in fact, set forth some sort of primitive natural law, such as most people who die stay dead. But then you've got to put a footnote with one, at least one, very important exception, namely Jesus Christ. Hume is assuming that no testimony in favor of the miraculous is ever worth bothering with. But that's exactly what we need to investigate, for goodness sake. All right. Uh, I should also give you uh, Hume's uh, clever little analogy that was connected with this. He said, if anybody comes to me and says, I've seen a miracle, I ask myself, which would be more miraculous, that the miracle really happened or that this person was not deceived or deceiving? Well, uh, it'll always be more miraculous if the person uh, were actually telling the truth, says Hume, so I reject the whole idea of his having seen a miracle. Huh? Uh, And this follows if you assume ahead of time that no testimony against the miraculous could be valid and all testimony would have to be the product of either uh, deceiving or being deceived, right? But, But this doesn't help us in the slightest because what we've got to do is what philosophers unhappily do not do. We have to get off our rear ends, off our derriere, and we have to go out into the world and actually observe to determine what's going on there. There is no way, a priori, philosophically, uh, to determine ahead of time what can happen or what cannot happen. This is a contingent universe. It's a universe where anything can happen, as one philosopher said, except squeezing toothpaste back into a tube. It is a very mysterious universe, and nobody is in a position philosophically to declare that certain things cannot happen. Uh, In order to do this, you would have to look under every rock of the universe and make sure that a miracle wasn't going on there, right? And you'd have to do this not only in the present, but in the past and in the future. So uh, this, this argument is simply out, out, out. Furthermore, as I'm sure you realize, we are no longer living in a Newtonian age, in the age, the 18th century, Hume's era, where uh, natural law was thought of of as something uh, absolutely solid. There were no exceptions to it. And through uh, modern science, we were learning the rules of the game. 
Uh, and once we do all of these rules, we could uh, exclude those things which, of course, could not happen. Listen, ever since Einstein's general and special theories of relativity, we have been living in a different physical universe. We've been living in a universe where th things are relative and where uh, you simply uh, in endeavor to determine the way the, the uh, cosmic cookie crumbles by examining the facts. And it's through examining the facts that you come to your general positions. Uh, you, you, you cannot ahead of time uh, rule anything out. Uh, the, 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 the game is open, and it's simply a matter of investigation. Now here, I think I mentioned last night that tonight there was going to be some scientific stuff in here uh, for those people who have gotten sick and tired of history and art and all that kind of thing. Uh, so this, this is the opportunity for those of you um, who just love science. You are probably well aware then... <clears throat> of the periodic table of the elements. Of course you are. When you took chemistry, they pointed out to you that in the 19th century, all of the elements were able to be classified according to their combining values, according to the, their ability to snuggle up with other elements. Right? Uh, here a little background. Uh, the model of the atom is usually that of a little solar system. Now, there aren't actually little balls running around in there or anything like that. Uh, there aren't little balls. Uh, these are changes in energy level, SPD and F energy uh, levels. Uh, but this is a good way of, uh, of uh, picturing uh, what goes on uh, in uh, the uh, combining of chemical elements. If the outer electron level of a, uh, of a particular uh, chemical element, if the outer level is lacking, let us say, uh, one electron, it would like to have a full um, outer electron ring, but it's lacking one electron. And it comes across another element that's outer electron ring has an extra element. It is love at first sight. It is love at first sight. Uh, example, uh, chlorine lacks one uh, uh, electron in its outer ring, and sodium uh, has one in its outer ring available. Hmm. In fact, it has only one, but it's, it's, it's available. So the two of it's a short romance uh, and, uh, uh, and, 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 a, and a, a, a quick wedding in Las Vegas. Uh, and what do you get? You get sodium chloride. Huh? Ordinary table salt. However, along with these uh, elements that are gregarious, there are elements uh, that uh, don't really like other elements. Uh, these elements are called the noble gases or the inert elements. They are the bachelors. Why? Because their outer electron rings are stuffed to their little gullets. Hmm? Uh, these are pictured at the far right-hand side of the chart. All right? They consist of uh, helium, neon, argon, krypton, xenon, and uh, radon. This conception of chemical combination um, produced Mendeleev's periodic table in the 19th century, and 
as a result of the elegance of this thing, nobody tried for a hundred years to combine those elements. And then in the 1960s, a team at um, a team in the Chicago area, uh, headed uh, by uh, a Canadian, uh, by ordinary chemical means, managed to produce compounds of inert gases. Yes, he produced, for example, xenon tetrafluoride. Uh, back, and this was reported in 1962. Uh, what had happened here? The chemical community had been so uh, hypnotized by the elegance of that periodic table that they didn't experiment and see if in certain circumstances there were exceptions to the general rules. They allowed the generalizations to eliminate any unique instances. Now this is exactly what happens when the unbeliever says, look at all the people who died and stayed dead. We are going to turn this into a generalization that everybody who dies stays dead, and we're not even going to investigate the case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, that kind of reasoning is just the opposite of good science. Good science starts with the particular, and on the basis of particular investigations, then builds generalizations. The generalizations are built from the particulars. Uh, the, the person who, uh, who, who refused to test these inert elements and the people who refuse to check on the resurrection of Jesus Christ are doing just the opposite. They are starting with a general principle for which they have no evidence, huh? uh, and uh, they are then uh, moving down and eliminating factors that make them feel uncomfortable. This is the worst kind of science. All right, I also want to mention um, a modern attempt uh, to use Hume's argument against the miraculous, and this is kind of fun. Uh, Anthony Flew was the most famous atheist of the 20th century. Uh, he eventually, before his death, moved to a belief in God, not to Christian faith. He moved to uh, deism, or deism, uh, where he believed that uh, in intelligent design, but he didn't ultimately arrive at Christian faith, apparently. Uh, Gary Habermas, who's a good friend of mine, had a lot of contact with Anthony Flew, and it may be that Flew was sort of teetering on the ragged edge, uh, but we'll never know uh, this side of eternity. In any case, in Flew's earlier career, Flew uh, gave what he considered the decisive argument against the resurrection, and it went like this. Well, it's true that uh, these disciples uh, claimed that Jesus rose again from the dead, and they went out and they died for it. Uh, and Christians have frequently argued that no one is going to go out and die for something that they know is untrue. People die for things that they think are true and aren't, uh, but they certainly don't die for something they know is untrue says Flew, that would be a psychological miracle, a psychological miracle, if uh, people went out and died for what they knew is untrue. Said Flew, I prefer psychological miracles to biological miracles. By biological miracles, he, me he meant the resurrection, the physical miracle that Jesus uh, rose again from the dead. <laughs> now, <laughs> 
this has, has stupefied some people when they've heard it. Uh, but think about it for a moment. This is simply another way of uh, committing Hume's abject failure. Why? Well, because it's an attempt to determine whether Christ rose again from the dead or didn't rise again from the dead on the basis of some general philosophical principle rather than on the basis of evidence. Think about this. Is there any evidence that the New Testament writers uh, did perform a psychological miracle? That is to say, is there any evidence that they had a screw loose somewhere? that they were crazier than March hares, and uh, even though they knew perfectly well that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they proclaimed it, and then they went out and died for it. Is there any, any psychological evidence along that line? Not a fraction. Is there any evidence for the biological miracle? Tons of evidence for it. <laughs> their, uh, their claim that Jesus ate with them after uh, Easter morning, uh, that it was possible to touch, touch him physically, uh, and all of the people who had contact with the risen Christ during a 40-day period. So uh, when you're dealing with uh, an issue like this, the, the whole question is, where does the factual evidence lie? And the factual evidence lies on the side of the eyewitnesses and you can't impugn those eyewitnesses. It does not lie on some kind of a comparison between alleged psychological and alleged uh, physical uh, or biological miracles. And finally, the old farmer. The farmer has had contact only with pigs and horses and cows and geese and chickens. But he is taken by his city cousin uh, to the big metropolis, and they go to the zoo. And there at the zoo, for the first time in his life, the old farmer sees a giraffe. He looks at it, he looks at it again, and he says, there ain't no such animal. The point is that this giraffe is totally out of the experience of the old farmer. When you're faced by something that is totally out of your experience, you've got two choices. One is uh, to play ostrich, uh, stick your head in the ground, and pretend that the data don't exist. That's one choice. The other choice is to expand your universe so that it takes into account the facts as they really are. The old farmer made the mistake of playing ostrich. And there are tons of people in the religious area uh, who are doing the same sort of thing. They will not face the case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ where the testimony and the documentary solidity of the whole business are so great that if this were in any other realm at all, there wouldn't be any question about it. What's going on here is that, that subconsciously, 
uh, the non-Christian is threatened by this whole thing because if Jesus did rise again from the dead, then he is the person he claimed to be and then he's got uh, a uh, something to say to you personally uh, and he wants to, to, to deal with your life and the person who, who wants to maintain autonomy uh, and run the universe himself is not going to like this. And so it's easier to try to get out from under this argument than it is to face the facts. All right. Uh, this is a quotation from a, an, uh, a, a pastor to English barristers, uh, a, a pastor of the church in London where my wife and I have worshipped very frequently, the Temple Church, uh, and uh, he was opposing people like Hume and other rationalists of the 18th century who were denying the miraculous. Uh, Thomas Sherlock, and he did a, and it may be, it may be that Conan Doyle took the name Sherlock for Sherlock Holmes from uh, Thomas Sherlock or from his father William, we're not sure. But in any case, uh, Thomas Sherlock did a book entitled The Trial of the Witnesses to the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, this has uh, only been reprinted once in my jurisprudence reader. If you ever want a collection of uh, legal materials supporting the gospel, uh, there is this jurisprudence reader. It's fairly expensive. Uh, I've used this as a case book in teaching in law school. Uh, you might want to get at it that way. Otherwise, you're going to have a real problem because it hasn't been otherwise reprinted since 1729. <laughs> anyway, Thomas Sherlock has this to say about the resurrection. Suppose you saw a man publicly executed, his body afterwards wounded by the executioner and carried and laid in the grave, that after this you should be told that the man was come to life again. What would you suspect in this case? Not that the man had never been dead, for that you saw yourself, but you would suspect whether he was now alive. But would you say that this case excluded all human testimony and that men uh, could not possibly discern whether one with whom they had conversed familiarly was alive or not? Upon what grounds could you say this? A man rising from the grave is an object of sense and can give the same evidence of his being alive as any other man in the world can give so that a resurrection considered only as a fact to be proved by evidence is a plain case. It requires no greater ability in the witnesses than that they should be able to distinguish between a man dead and a man alive, a point in which I believe every man living thinks himself a judge. I mean, if we, if we weren't able to make that distinction, we'd be burying the wrong people, right? So this is a, a plain uh, instance of uh, eyewitness testimony. That's what Sherlock is saying here. It can't be uh, eliminated, somehow pushed aside, because it has to do with miracle, because we cannot eliminate the miraculous as a category. Some years ago, um, a, a book was uh, published by a professor of history at the University of Chicago. Uh, this book was entitled The Rise of the West, uh, by a Professor McNeil. It was, uh, it was to, uh, to, to counteract the, uh, the decline of the West, uh, a classic. Uh, anyway, um, I was on a panel of the American Historical Association on this, and uh, <coughs> uh, McNeil was present. 
and I had a chance to ask him a question. And I said, why is it in your book, The Rise of the West, you never deal with the origins of Christianity, how it was that Christianity prevailed and became the uh, official religion of the Roman Empire and dominated the West from there on? And McNeil said, well, I couldn't do that because as a historian, I can't deal with miracles, and it's obvious that the early Christians thought that Jesus had risen again from the dead. I said, McNeil, you are not a historian. You are a philosopher. As a historian, you have the responsibility to deal with whatever testimony is available, and you are to uh, examine this testimony for its veracity. Uh, And philosophically, you have no way of knowing about miracles anyway, so uh, you can't use that as as an argument to deflect the data that ought to be treated in in your work. Yes? From time to time... uh, Attempts are made to get out from under the argument for the resurrection by saying that Jesus never actually died on the cross. Uh, this goes back to the uh, to 18th century also to the Venturini uh, swoon theory. Uh, Jesus swooned, uh, fainted, uh, and uh, somehow recovered, uh, and that gave people the idea he rose again from the dead. Well, uh, I mean, if you can believe that, you shouldn't have any trouble with the resurrection in the slightest. It it, it takes immensely more faith to believe that. Why? Well, Jesus was crucified by a a team of Roman soldiers. These were crucifixion teams, and they certainly knew what they were doing. Uh, Here is a citation to an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, 1986, which is almost book length. And the three authors are uh, a a medical specialist, uh, a historian, and a theologian. And the conclusion of this detailed examination of uh, the crucifixion of Christ is given here. Jesus of Nazareth underwent Jewish and Roman trials, was flogged, and was sentenced to death by crucifixion. Death resulted primarily from hypophalemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. Modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. There is no way in the world that one can take any other view than that. Uh, And uh, this is also pertinent, by the way, in discussions with Muslims, because uh, in the Quran it is said that Jesus did not die on the cross. Uh, There was a substitute uh, of some sort. And here's Dorothy Sayers, one of my favorite writers. Uh, You know of her from the Lord Peter Whimsey detective stories, certainly, but she was a fine lay apologist. And in the introduction to her her play uh, concerning uh, Jesus, uh, it's called The Man Born to be King, she has this to say. In the case of the various accounts of the resurrection appearances at the sepulcher, the divergences appear very great on first sight. But the fact remains that all of them, it's her italics, all of them, without exception, can be made to fall into place in a single orderly and coherent narrative without the smallest contradiction or difficulty and without any suppression, invention, or manipulation beyond a trifling effort to imagine the natural behavior of a bunch of startled people running about in the dawn light between Jerusalem and the garden. 
and Dorothy Sayers was a fine literary critic, and there she is saying, when you look at the New Testament, uh, you know, treat, treat this as you would uh, any uh, natural narrative of people. Uh, and if you do this, you're not going to find contradictions and errors, and it's perfectly possible to reconcile uh, the uh, various narratives uh, in the Gospels concerning uh, the morning of the resurrection. And here, one of the greatest historians of the 19th century, Thomas Arnold, professor of history at Oxford, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given that Christ died and rose again from the dead. So, when you come across somebody from Podunk State Teachers College Uh, who has given up his belief that he acquired at Wheaton College. When you come across something like this, my advice is to put that person in a balance with Thomas Arnold and the really great historians. Uh, In the 19th century, the greatest authority on common law evidence Uh, in America was a professor at Harvard, uh, Simon Greenleaf. Uh, His uh, work on evidence was multivolume and it had great influence in England as well. And Greenleaf also did a little book entitled The Testimony of the Evangelists. And in this, as it were, he put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the witness stand to see if their testimony uh, to our Lord would hold up. Uh, And uh, this is from uh, Greenlee's Testimony of the Evangelist. That, that little book, it's very short, is reprinted as an appendix in my book, The Law Above the Law. So should you on some occasion buy The Law Above the Law, you are also going to get Greenleaf's Testimony of the Evangelist. You can also buy that separately in a great big thick book for a very high price. Uh, How does that happen? It's because uh, somebody attached it to Greenleaf's Harmony of the Gospels. Now, you don't want a copy of Greenleaf's Harmony of the Gospels. There are tons of harmonies of the Gospels, and he was not any more harmonious than a lot of other people uh, in, in, in that respect. But what you want is this little 50-page uh, uh, argument that the Gospel writers uh, are uh, able to, to stand up in any common law court. And this is what Greenleaf says. All that Christianity asks of men on this subject is that they would be consistent with themselves that they would treat its evidences as they treat the evidences of other things, and that they would try and judge its actors and witnesses as they deal with their fellow men when testifying to human affairs and actions in human tribunals. Uh, When testify, yes, uh, let the witnesses be compared with themselves, with each other, and with surrounding facts and circumstances, and let their testimony be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party the witnesses being subject to a rigorous cross-examination. The result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. That, from the greatest uh, mind in the law of evidence uh, in the 19th century. And uh, in the 20th, by the way, uh, Sir Norman Anderson who did a little book, A Lawyer Among the Theologians. I was on programs with him uh, in England, uh, and he did a little book uh, entitled the, the, the Case for the Resurrection uh, that has been used very effectively in personal witness uh, in England. 
lawyers, because they are focusing on evidence, uh, are uh, very, very likely to move in the direction of Christian faith. And I want to conclude uh, with uh, a <clears throat> an, an answer that I think will help you to see how lawyers reason when they're faced with criticisms of the kind that come up in the case of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, it is said by some non-Christian writers uh, that uh, perhaps uh, Jesus had uh, special powers, but that wouldn't mean that he was God. For example, there was Schoenfield's book, The Passover Plot, some years ago, and there was also the work of Fundanikin, Chariots of the Gods. And the theme there is that Jesus actually was a space creature. And, and since he came from outer space, he had abilities that the average person doesn't have. Uh, you know, things like getting resurrected and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, this is seriously presented as, as an alternative to the, uh, to the gospel materials. Now, how do lawyers deal with hypotheses, theories, uh, efforts to make evidence understandable? They deal on the basis of probabilities, not on the basis of absolute certainties or possibilities. The law, just like, the, like history, works with probability, not with absolute certainty, and not with uh, possibility. Why not absolute certainty? Because, except in pure mathematics and deductive logic, you can't have absolute certainty. Uh, the only reason you have them in the realms of deductive logic and, uh, and uh, uh, formal mathematics is that you presuppose them in at the beginning, in the axioms of the system. Uh, so if you grant the axioms, uh, everything's going to follow uh, with no difficulty whatsoever. The only difficulty is that the axioms are not necessarily in accord with the way the world works. This is why you can do non-Euclidean geometries where uh, more than uh, one line can be parallel uh, to the, can be perpendicular to the same line at the same point. Uh, you can develop uh, geometries that have nothing to do with this world whatsoever because those are formal systems. We are not dealing with formal systems when it's a question of fact. And where facts are concerned, you've got to deal with probability, not with possibility. Why not with possibility? We've already told you this, because anything is possible but squeezing toothpaste back into a tube. And if you start messing around with possibility, there's no end to the kind of bizarre explanations you can come up with. I give you a legal example. The sheriff's deputies get a tip that something dreadful has happened in the old mansion at Gopher Gulch. They break in and there is an Agatha Christie style locked room, no way to get in, no way to get out. And inside of this room uh, there is uh, the victim uh, divided into 18 equal size pieces and the accused holding a bloody axe. Well, uh, the, uh, the accused, of course, is, is tried. Uh, uh, evidence is presented. Uh, the judge instructs the jury as follows. This is uh, an instruction in, in about half of the common law jurisdictions in the United States. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you must not find 
the accused guilty unless you are convinced to a moral certainty beyond reasonable doubt of his guilt. And that means that you can take into account only the evidence which has been introduced in this case, only the admissible evidence, and only if you cannot find any other reasonable explanation of the crime in accord with the admissible evidence than that the accused did it, only then can you come in with a guilty verdict. He explains this to them. They go into the jury room um, munching on fritos and the like, uh, and uh, time passes, and uh, they return. They have a verdict. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, clerk of court, clerk of court uh, asks the foreman to read the verdict, and the foreman says, we find the defendant innocent. The judge wakes up. Uh, he is appalled, and he insists on some kind of explanation. foreman says, your worship, your honor, uh, this is a mysterious universe. It's a universe in which Anything can happen. It's a contingent universe. Uh, the judge actually majored in agriculture and is having some problems with this, but, but he, he does finally catch on to what's being said. Uh, and the, uh, <clears throat> the foreman says, because it is a genuine cosmic possibility that invisible Martians entered uh, this room and not liking the accused, uh, cut up the victim and made it look as if the accused did it. Because this is a genuine metaphysical possibility, we find the defendant innocent. The judge would have apoplexy. He told these nincompoops uh, that they were to pay attention to nothing but the admissible evidence and any interpretation had to conform to that evidence. And if they couldn't find any explanation of this crime other than, than that the accused did it, they would have to find him guilty. But if they could find even one reasonable explanation in accord with the evidence, then they would have to bring in an innocent verdict. What this jury has done is to substitute possibility for probability. Now, this is exactly what Schoenfield and Fendanikin and all those people who come up with bizarre, off-the-wall explanations of the, to get out from under the resurrection of Jesus Christ are doing. The only way to handle the issue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to pay attention to the data, to pay attention to the evidence, to the witnesses. And if you do this, what do you find? you find that the evidence is simply overwhelming. It's, it's so great that Paul, uh, writing uh, within a generation of the uh, death and resurrection of Christ, uh, lists a few people who saw him and then uh, simply says, and he appeared to over 500 others, most of whom remain alive to the present. Meaning that you could go out and ask people, uh, you could go out and ask people uh, and, 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 and get the, the information directly from them. Uh, and if Jesus did rise again from the dead, what is the only uh, reasonable conclusion from this? Well, you, you're going to want to ask him how this came about. Why? 
You don't want to ask other people. If somebody hasn't risen from the dead, they're in a very poor position to give any explanations. Right? You're going to want to go to Jesus himself, and what does he tell you? He tells you that uh, before Abraham was, he was. Uh, he, uh, his preexistence, he was uh, with God from the beginning. He was God. Uh, and he who has seen me has seen the Father. You are in contact then with the God of the universe and a, a God who loves us all to such an extent that if, if, you know, if, only, if just you, one single person, uh, were, were in this position, he would have done that for that person. He took the sin and self-centeredness uh, that we all have onto himself and he expiated this uh, on the cross. Uh, and, and he did this solely, solely out of his love for us, and a love that was undeserved on every level. Uh, it's a, a, a strange thing that the human beings who uh, have caused the misery uh, in the universe, uh, in our universe, in our world, um, uh, have so much difficulty in accepting the notion that uh, God could love them enough to do this sort of thing. If we can once grasp that, then it seems to me the conclusion that we come to is inevitable. The conclusion is that uh, uh, if he's done this for us, uh, the very least we can do uh, is to submit ourselves to his will and, and be saved. And the way to get saved is simply to admit that you cannot save yourself and that you rely upon him for that salvation. And through the centuries, every person who's ever done this, no matter what their, their, their country, their, their climb, their, their geography, their historical point, uh, all those people who've done this have uh, arrived at exactly the same point where he has become the center of their lives. And what does that mean? Well, the Bible says if any person is in, is in Christ, he is a new creature. He becomes a new creature. All things are passed away all things become new, and that promise is as solid today as it ever was. And when we, <laughs> and when we come together tomorrow night, uh, we're going to see that that promise is embedded in the whole of Scripture and that all of Scripture is God's Word, all of it is reliable, hmm? uh, and it can be trusted. And this is terribly important because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you have a Bible you can't rely on, you're not going to be growing in faith. And the way to do that is simply to let uh, God speak to you in Christ, uh, the living Word, through the written Word. And uh, since, as I mentioned last night, uh, uh, the language of heaven is French, uh, <laughs> I am going to conclude with a French quotation, and this is from, of course, Pascal. Pascal, his pensées, his thoughts, and this is number 430. Why am I numbering them? Because uh, <laughs> Pascal left fragments uh, 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 with, with these thoughts and they've been organized by different editors in different ways and so depending on the edition it won't necessarily uh, be in the same order but you look for number 430 and here's what Pascal had to say there is enough light for those who desire only to see and there's enough darkness for those who have a contrary disposition what's the point of that? 
because the case for Jesus Christ is a case based on historical and legal probability, it is not a 100% case. To be a 100% case, it couldn't deal with any matter of fact. It would have to deal with a purely mathematical or logical idea. Therefore, there is room to get out from under this. But in order to get out from under it, since the evidence is so overwhelming and positive and would be evidence that you would accept under all other circumstances, the only reason that people reject it is because they have a contrary disposition to the search for truth. You want to make sure you're not in that category. If you're here at university, you're supposed to be getting an education and becoming an educated person, and that means that you have got to keep yourself open to evidence and open to the truth. You are the last person who can justify himself with a contrary disposition to evidence and truth. So take what we've been doing these two nights, work on it, and if you follow these leads, you will arrive at the cross of Christ. Thank you. Thank you.